This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone, welcome to another episode of New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Asharika. I'm a PhD student at the University of Nottingham, and today I'll be speaking to a very special guest, Dr. Amya Agarwal. Amya is the author of the book "Contesting Masculinities and Women Agency in Kashmir," published by Roman and Littlefield. Amya is based in Germany, and I would like to welcome her. Hey, Amya! Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Asharika, for having me here. Yeah. Amia, so I wanted to know a bit more about your book. And before I go into that, please tell me a bit more about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you based? And what was your intellectual inspiration behind the book? Sure. Thanks a lot, Tasharika. And once again, uh, thank you so much for this excellent opportunity to be in conversation with you. Um, So I am an academic from India uh, based now in Freiburg in Germany, where I work as a senior researcher at the Arnold Bergstrasse Institute. And I also teach at the University of Freiburg. Um, My research interests include gender conflict and security in South Asia, um, critical masculinity studies, visuality and emotions in violence and resistance. But uh, those are not the only things that shape my identity. Uh, I'm also a parent, and I like to occasionally dabble in poetry, pottery, and dance when I'm not reading, writing, teaching, or parenting, and sometimes doing all of these things together. Um, Now, coming to your question about the intellectual inspiration behind the book. Yes. So um, the book is actually based on my PhD. Um, mm-hmm. But before that, I had written my MPhil thesis on Mera Paibis and uh, women's agency in Manipur. Mm-hmm. And I had also worked as an intern with the Manipuri Women Gun Survivors Network in Delhi. And my initial idea was to do a PhD on something like a comparative study of women's agency in the Northeast and Kashmir. But after uh, my preliminary field visit to Kashmir, I thought there was a lot of ground to cover. And uh, eventually, I narrowed down my focus only on Kashmir. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, before, uh, you know, I visited Kashmir, I had heard a lot about the scenic views and beauty of the place. 
concepts, right? Uh, so, but to my eyes, uh, and maybe perhaps uh, this may be similar in your experience also. Yes. The militarization was way more stark and visible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially like army camps with barbed wires, beer bottles, mm-hmm. and then carved out slogans on the hills, uh, slogan on the army camps. So uh, to me, I found this to be a sort of an implicit attempt at hegemonizing the military masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, alongside, I also remember at that time having watched a number of Bollywood movies yeah. made on the Indian Army, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which were full of masculinist provocations and mm-hmm. challenges thrown at the enemy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I often wondered uh, about how integral masculinity is in the mm-hmm. everyday of uh, the military institutions. And I was also very curious if masculinities are only tied to violence and um, if the army men and militants themselves uh, are able to live, always live up to these masculine expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, also, feminist IR scholarship, particularly the work of Cynthia and Lowe, mm-hmm. Carol Kahn, and also critical masculinity studies scholars like uh, Raven uh, Connell, uh, also sort of inspired this line of thinking and curiosity in me. And uh, so for me, masculinity then provided a very suitable entry point and mm. framework to study mm. both the state and the non-state militarized actors and mm. also the overall you know, gender ecosystem in the Kashmir conflict. Mm. And um, here it may be also interesting to point out um, you know, that initially I was writing drafts on women's role uh, and agency, and uh, there was already uh, such a rich literature available uh, on women's agency in Kashmir. But uh, as I conducted more interviews, it became evident that women's agency was entangled with the construction and enactment of masculinities uh, in the Kashmir conflict. So, yeah. for example, um, women reinforcing militant masculinity, such as mm. decorating them before they cross the border, or mm. uh, creatively engaging with the limited, uh, limiting confines and uh, symbolism imposed yeah. by the patriarchal projects. So I think uh, that overall was the trajectory of the Mm. intellectual inspiration for the book. Mm. Well, fantastic, fantastic. Also, what is inspiring about the human aspect to it that you shared in the beginning, you know, and it's just very inspiring. And then uh, how you, you know, how things kind of turned around. And I think that's probably the case with me also when I started my research on Kashmir. The first time when I went and after that, I realized there's so much to discover about it. It's literally like the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Um, Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the next question is, and I know I would, you know, if we, our listeners who are not familiar with it, I would uh, really like if you could, you know, expand a bit about the Kashmiri resistance movement and, you know, what what changes do you see in the current landscape, particularly with the youth? You've also discussed this in your fourth chapter, in fact, and I found it very fascinating. So if you could share with our audiences. Sure. Um, Thanks a lot. Uh, So I think, Tusharika, there is an extensive history of the Kashmiri resistance movement. And uh, this is way, much way before actually the uh, Mm. partition of the Indian subcontinent. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for example, the resistance against the Dogra rulers, where uh, both men and women uh, protested against the, uh, you know, for example, the taxation policies Mm. for shawl weavers and the Rahadari uh, policy that was introduced under Gulab Singh, who was the ruler. Mm. 
then and um, or the armed resistance of 1930s after the formation of the all Jammu and Kashmir Muslim conference. Mm -hmm. And these protests were, uh, you know, non-communal and directed mostly against the poor administration of the Dobra rule. Uh, I'm specifying this because it's usually understood that uh, these protests were usually communal in nature and because there was a Muslim majority ruled under uh, a Hindu uh, you know, ruler. So um, because even the Kashmiri pundits protested for their inclusion in the administrative jobs of the Dobra state. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, honestly, one entire separate podcast would be required to discuss yes. the history of the resistance yes. in Kashmir. But I will, uh, you know, stick to uh, my book uh, here and, um, mm. you know, talk more in relation to the book. So mm. I have looked at the certain, um, you know, time frames in the resistance mm. movement mm -hmm. in order to specifically understand the construction of the militant masculinities. So, for instance, I look at the late 1980s when the armed resistance uh, was at its peak in uh, Kashmir to understand the meaning of masculinity attached to the militant or the Mujahid, uh, as they are called then, mm -hmm. and how religion, international militant networks, and folk traditions also shaped such a masculinity. And then later on in 2013 onwards, when a more indigenous form of militancy movement started with the popular uh, poster hero Burhanwani leading that movement. And I explore how the meaning and aesthetics of masculinity underwent a change with more intersections between modernity, religion and economy. And uh, uh, such a change, you know, over a period of time signified that there is a fluidity and dynamic nature of militarized masculinities. Hmm. And uh, about your question um, with regard to the changes uh, in the current uh, landscape. So when I had interviewed uh, young boys between hmm. 2013 and uh, 2016, mm -hmm. and some of these boys had participated in the stone pelting movement um, mm -hmm. in 2008 and 10. Uh, there was a lot of resist resentment against the uh, Indian state. State and uh, yeah, there were also recruitment drives uh, by this new militant group, um, and who was uh, that was led by Burhan Wani, and mm -hmm. many of these young boys were willing to join militancy at that point, mm -hmm. and some of the interviewed boys had pellet in their bodies even while they were giving interviews to me and mm -hmm. uh, they talked of being uh, or feeling extremely harassed by the Indian state for uh, mm -hmm. being detained and locked up on different national occasions. So mm -hmm. that was the overall sentiment that I had got in the responses back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but for a current project uh, on uh, sexual violence against mm -hmm. women in Kashmir uh, uh, that I'm working on, uh, mm -hmm. along with other research collaborators. Uh, I've conducted mm -hmm. a few interviews with the youth since 2021 now. Mm -hmm. And so far, we have received mixed responses. Um, right. So after the revocation of Article uh, 370 in uh, 2019, there mm -hmm. were curfews and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you know about this. Uh, the Extensive, internet, yeah, internet. Yeah, yeah. Internet uh, connectivity was cut and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there are accounts of frustration and complete lack of trust mm -hmm. towards the state. Mm -hmm. Mm. But uh, some of the responses uh, now also surprisingly reflect narratives mm. of appreciation for the state for mm. ensuring development uh, and mm. even peace building. So mm. uh, there is a lot of change in the narratives now uh, mm. among the mm. youth. 
So mm. uh, yeah, it, it is very difficult to sort of generalize uh, the kind of sentiment uh, that exists right now. Interesting. That's very interesting. You know, we talk about the everyday uh, peace building or, you know, everyday movement and observations, which is quite interesting, I think. I believe that will be a very fascinating study. Okay. Right. Great. So, you know, moving on to the next question, and which is particularly, you know, related to your book. And in your third chapter, you have discussed in detail about the military masculinities of state force. So would you mind um, expanding a bit on that? You know, you started with this one, but it would be nice if we know a little more on that. Right. Yeah. Um, sure. So in the mainstream uh, Indian context, you know, mm -hmm. um, there is this certain imagery of a military man who mm -hmm. possesses masculine characteristics of bravery, maturity, is a protector of women and children, and is violent only when it is required. Uh, mm -hmm. So this ideal military man looks in a certain way, belongs to the middle class, is portrayed as secular and patriotic, um, mm -hmm. and is ready to sacrifice his life for the nation. Uh, so I don't know about you, Tusharika, but to me, the image of Akshay Kumar playing an army man <laughs> often comes to mind. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my quest in the third chapter was actually to explore how this ideal military masculinity is shaped and circulated. And um, so I do this through uh, interviews with army men. And uh, wow. of course, I absolutely understand the privilege of my position in being able to mm -hmm. conduct these interviews. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also studied some of their uh, training practices and the slogans mm -hmm. that they use. Um, mm -hmm. And even I have closely watched the Bollywood representations of uh, mm -hmm. the military men. Mm -hmm. Along with that, uh, also the layman's perception of these ideal Im imageries, you know, mm -hmm. because I remember uh, going to a salon in uh, Delhi and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the person who was the hairdresser was uh, telling me that uh, the crew cut or that Akshay Kumar cut, haircut is mm -hmm. so, uh, popular. you know, uh, popular and so <laughs> many young men want to get that haircut because it looks very, uh, it, you know, they give that disciplined look to them and all of that. So it, it was very fascinating how the lay, layman's perception of this ideal mm -hmm. form of masculinity also exists. Mm -hmm. um, so along with that, I what I also found, found was that um, there are these implicit intersections of this ideal military masculinity with religion and history that mm -hmm. uh, I've attempted to explore in the uh, chapter. And as an mm -hmm. extension, um, I was also very curious to study how far the men in the Indian Army are able to live up to these extremely high masculine expectations. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the findings actually show that they are not fully able to live up to these expectations. And mm -hmm. in fact, they feel vulnerable and uh, reflect with regret uh, mm -hmm. on their violent encounters and have even questioned their choices. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned most of these, uh, you know, interviews and narratives in the uh, third chapter. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, these findings have been quite surprising. Yeah, very fascinating. Yeah. Wow. This is interesting. I believe that could be a different altogether uh, book on that, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, that um, yeah, it, it is absolutely a, a complete different topic for a separate research. Research study and could fall in terms of security studies also in fact strongly, right? Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Thanks for that answer. Now next 
the next question, and this is actually my favorite chapter, and I think I could see that you put your heart and soul into this chapter. I think this is like the, you know, the the ultimate uh, high point of your chapter for me. And you've spoken about uh, the women's agency in Kashmir. Talk us through about some of the narratives that you found in your research. Um, yes, thanks uh, to Sharika. I think you guessed that correctly. Yes, um, yes. It, it has. It is my favorite chapter too. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I'm particularly fond of this chapter and mm-hmm. honestly it, it was really an eye-opener for me to see how women in Kashmir exercise their agency in so many different I mean multiple ways mm-hmm. and even though uh, there is so much academic literature on the different roles that women have played in the Kashmir's resistance mm-hmm. but uh, still the dominant narrative somehow is about women leading confined lives due to the mm-hmm. conservative nature of the Kashmir's uh, society. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really a false view. Mm-hmm. So in the fifth chapter, um, I look at the uh, maternal symbolisms and imageries used mm-hmm. to establish feminine norms, uh, both by the state and the non-state actors. So mm-hmm. for instance, the Indian army uses not only slogans of Mother India or Bharat Mata Ki Jai, but Mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, they put the pictures uh, of Mother India uh, motivating them in their training practices. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, uh, the resistance movement in Kashmir also uses um, these kind of imageries like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, symbols of kind, sacrificing and grieving mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all such symbols and narratives reinforce masculinities through the, uh, you know, masculinist logic uh, mm-hmm. or the logic of masculinist protection, mm-hmm. uh, which also enables uh, reinstating the feminine norms. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is interesting is that women have creatively negotiated these symbolisms and confines mm-hmm. and uh, claimed space in the public life. And mm-hmm. that sometimes include uh, even reinforcing violent masculinities through these very symbols Mm -hmm. so uh, the chapter tells a few stories of Kashmiri women who are actively involved in the who were uh, rather actively involved in the resistance and Mm -hmm. uh, I show how uh, women exercise mixed agency uh, which is Mm -hmm. sometimes uh, complicit and uh, at other times it is a subversive of patriarchy Mm-hmm. Uh, and even w- within one single story, um, such mm-hmm. as that of Zoya, for instance, uh, and mm-hmm. the names are changed mm-hmm. in the book, yeah. one finds that there is like a high, uh, there, there are these hybrid elements of resistance. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, on one hand, there is fight against patriarchy. Uh, that is present uh, within the separatist and resistance uh, projects. But Mm -hmm. it is also combined with uh, Zoya's aspiration of political freedom. So there Mm -hmm. are uh, these uh, mixed ways in which uh, women have sort of exercised the uh, agency, which is is really um, fascinating. Mm -hmm. And another example among others that I bring is that of the uh, women in Panchayat Halkas or these uh, local self-governing bodies. And uh, these women are, uh, you know, caught between the threats from the militant groups and their duties as village representatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least they were caught in between these tensions during the time that I was interviewing them. Mm-hmm. And uh, how they made these very difficult choices, uh, sometimes they yielded into the demands of uh, the militants and other times they continued their duties despite the risk to their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, some of 
these women that I interviewed, they also had been attacked uh, uh, multiple times, you know, so uh, they made these very difficult choices. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I have tried to show in this chapter these different uh, nuances Mm -hmm. uh, of women's agency in Kashmir. And so wonderfully done, actually, I mean, I must really appreciate you for that. Um, Very well done on that. Okay, next. And, you know, we're just moving towards uh, from the main context of the book, we're moving towards more of the methodological section of it. And, you know, this is particularly something that I have interest in, because I'm always intrigued by the process of doing things. And so you work, you have extensive amount of uh, fieldwork, and there's a very strong methodological contribution. So what were your challenges that you face while conducting the research? And how do you see your play, work being placed in terms of methodological contribution? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that question, uh, Tusharika. I think it's such yeah. an important question. Yeah. So uh, my research entailed more than... Uh, I think 120 qualitative interviews Mm. and informal Mm. conversations with diverse stakeholders Mm. in seven districts of Kashmir. Mm. Uh, And my interviewees included uh, former militants, men in the Mm. Indian Army, young boys and girls who participated in the stone pelting movements, Mm. uh, widows, half widows, Mm. um, women elected representatives of uh, the local self-governing bodies, human rights activists and public figures in the uh, Kashmir resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, Along with including these diverse perspectives and voices through interviews, I think Mm -hmm. another important methodological uh, uh, contribution of the book is uh, the use of audio visual sources, such as uh, slogans on the army camps, uh, poetry on the graves, uh, graffiti, murals, pictures, um, Bollywood movies, and there and all these uh, sources that I've u- used, I think their effectiveness in contributing towards uh, a gender analysis has really been immense. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, I think uh, uh, the emphasis on reflexivity and transparency in research is also mm-hmm. a significant uh, offering that the book makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, by reflexivity, I mean, uh, you know, being conscious about the power dynamics within the research process mm-hmm. and a reflection on my own position as an outsider, a Hindu, a middle class, upper caste woman, and how these uh, different identities may have affected the research dynamics Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think I have answered your second question first (laughs) and uh, now coming uh, to the challenges challenges uh, yeah which I'm sure there have been many yes (laughs) considering that we both do field work and kind of field work yes I'm sure I'm sure uh, you would have a number of stories to tell as well Um, so in in the book actually I um, recount a few ethical dilemmas and challenges mm-hmm. that came uh, during the field work. And right. um, uh, maybe I can just share a couple of anecdotes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, my laptop and pen drives were checked mm-hmm. every time I left the Srinagar airport. And perhaps mm-hmm. it might happen with you as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also meant that I was risking the trust of my interviewees. Um, Mm. So this was a a very difficult moment for me every time, Mm. Um, you know, to to completely 
reveal or expose the um, the answers that were given to me and they might have confided in me when they shared a few experiences mm-hmm. so I, i felt a bit uh, concerned and responsible at that point mm-hmm. and uh, for a long time it was also very difficult for me to publish anything uh, from the data as mm-hmm. i felt it was a very extractive exercise Mm-hmm. and um i remember it was much later when i went to my first isa conference in baltimore mm-hmm. uh, that i met and attended presentations of academics doing similar kind of research in different mm-hmm. contexts mm-hmm. and they were also struggling with a similar kind of emotional and ethical uh, challenges mm-hmm. and um that you know sort of gave me uh, the courage to publish and uh, also embrace my research as an important feminist work until mm-hmm. then i was uh, you know i was a bit less confident about uh, what to do with you know mm-hmm. the data that i've collected mm-hmm. um alongside i think uh, the emotional challenge of listening and also sometimes re-listening to the people's painful experiences is something uh, that researchers have only uh, started talking about now but mm. back then when i was doing my field work there was no conversation or literature about processing the researchers emotions mm-hmm. so um, uh, you know it was difficult to understand how do i go back uh, to the you know room and uh, process the emotions of mm. you know that uh, uh, came across uh, that i had personally a while mm. in those encounters with the uh, interviewees and uh, other uh, conversations so mm. uh, but at the same time uh, some of the very painful conversations that i've had in uh, kashmir mm. have also provided me the strength to endure some very challenging situations in my own life mm. and for me uh, that research also was spiritual and healing as wow. much as it was challenging yeah mm-hmm. oh, fantastic you know you just mentioned about the emotional aspect and you know i know both of us we have this very soft corner for professor swati parashar and she has some fantastic work on emotion and conflict and yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's so inspiring you know and at the moment you said it just remind me of that uh, and i totally understand and you know the process is so it became almost personal isn't it uh, kind of you have to understand you know uh, that that it's it is a process that you're living with you're literally living with that every day and i'm really glad that you went for that conference and that gave me give you so much of confidence because maybe because of that now we have a fantastic book right um okay and and i have a lot of people to thank oh but <laughs> uh, yeah that that oh, would wonderful. probably require another podcast <laughs> wonderful yeah um so okay this this is something that i want to know and this would be really helpful to a lot of early career researcher right so what exactly is your writing process and how did you and when did you actually decided to convert your psc thesis into a book if you could share the process it would be of great benefit you could tell us how do you do how do you stop when do you start what time routine do you use you know whatever you could share with us okay i really should not uh, talk about the uh, routine and the time <laughs> i want to discourage uh, the you know early career researchers but yeah. um so for me uh, i think academic writing has always been a struggle uh, mm. and i'm going to give you a very honest answer <laughs> to yeah. this yeah. and as yeah. a student to um 
you know, most of the so-called uh, important political science and IR, mm-hmm. IR texts, uh, international relations uh, texts mm-hmm. were uh, unrelatable for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, but, you know, it was very hard for a thesis to gain validation unless it had uh, argumentative certitude and mm-hmm. uh, live up to certain academic mm-hmm. standards, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I learned to write as I was told to. And mm-hmm. um what I realized is that in the process, my writing became very defensive. Mm. And even now, I'm trying to unlearn this defensiveness and embrace my own voice and style. Mm. But it has really been a big struggle for me. Mm. And uh, also for the benefit of early career researchers, as you said, um, Mm. I must add that uh, there is a world of difference between writing a thesis and writing a book. And I have personally learned it the hard way. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, after years of trying to learn academic writing during PhD and mm-hmm. producing pieces that somewhat, you know, match the academic standards, mm-hmm. I thought uh, my thesis was good enough to be published. And um, but when I sent it, the publishers mm-hmm. uh, sent the manuscript back with pages full of review comments, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was highly disappointing. Mm. So during my uh, postdoc period, I rewrote the entire manuscript and eventually the book's length is actually half of uh, the thesis, uh, the length of the Mm. thesis. Mm -hmm. And um, I was uh, fortunate to have a book series editor, uh, Henry Mertonen, who insisted Mm. that I should find my own voice. And, um, you know, he read through several drafts and helped me restructure the manuscript uh, so that it at least resembles a book. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that kind of support uh, was very helpful. Um, And I think the closest word that I can find when it comes to book writing is storytelling. So from all the theories that you've, you know, tested through data in your thesis, in Mm. the book, what you write is eventually the story that you want to tell in your own voice and in your own words. Mm. Uh, And I'm not saying that my storytelling skills have been great in this book, (laughs) Mm. but perhaps it has been a step in the learning and unlearning process to write Mm. a story Mm. that deserves and needs to be written. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, one last point that I think is important to share is that um, sometimes as academics from the global south, Mm -hmm. and this entails uh, gender, religion, Mm -hmm. caste dimensions, we are perpetually doubting ourselves and our work. And uh, so true. Yes. (laughs) And I feel we don't take uh, enough risks and we don't feel very confident about our work. Mm -hmm. So uh, for early career researchers who think they have a great thesis with Mm. a story that needs to be told and they Mm. are determined to do whatever it takes to write a good book, they Mm. really should approach university presses and Mm. leading journals in their fields and not feel Mm. any less about themselves. And Mm. uh, this is something I wish someone had told me to, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think yeah, that would be my answer. But a, but a fantastic advice it is. You know, the, the idea is just to get on with it. Just do it, right? Isn't this the processes? Wow, wonderful. Thanks for that answer. So, okay, we're coming almost to the end of the you know, podcast, but what are your upcoming projects and how do you decide what will be your next progression academically? Um, yeah, so I'm working on a project uh, on sexual violence along the war and peace continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this is a project funded by the Swedish Research Council. And in fact, uh, Swati Parashar is one of the mm. uh, principal investigators with whom I'm mm. working. I am mm-hmm. uh, assisting the project with data collection in Kashmir, and mm-hmm. we are in the process of co-writing uh, two pieces on mm-hmm. the data we've collected uh, so far. Okay. And uh, with colleagues in Germany, I am co-editing an issue on uh, emotional proximity and distance in world politics. And oh. for this issue, I am currently working on my own paper on women's artwork in war and resistance. Oh. And uh, in addition, I have uh, applied for a research grant. And if that mm. works out, it will enable me to, you know, extend my research on uh, gender specific themes and potentially with the possibility for another book. Wow, and, fantastic. Uh, about um, deciding my academic progression, I think that was also part of your question. Yes. Uh, that, yeah, that is really interesting. Um, I think uh, for me, it would... Uh, involved taking stock of the academic skills and professional mm-hmm. maturity that I have gained mm-hmm. in the last three years mm-hmm. and new skills um, that I would like to learn in the next few mm-hmm. years. So uh, such an evaluation also includes understanding what motivates and stimulates me intellectually, you know, uh, to draw Mm. future research and teaching Mm -hmm. plans. Mm. Uh, And one last but uh, definitely not the least point uh, is that, and this is not said very often, uh, Mm. that a lot of my decisions like other early career researchers are also tied with academic precarity. So uh, my future plans, uh, you know, are also driven with the need to secure a stable career. So it's not always, I don't always have the luxury to uh, choose things that only intellectually, uh, you know, stimulate me, but also uh, the factor of uh, needing to secure stability uh, goes hand in hand with the decisions about uh, academic progression. And Mm -hmm. uh, also I have started paying attention, you know, to my boundaries and knowing Mm -hmm. well what I don't want to compromise on, you know, such Mm. as uh, mental well-being or evening time and weekends with my daughter. So these are also important factors to take into account. Such honest thoughts, Amy, and I could not have agreed more with this. This is so true. And it's important because um, considering that we all are immigrants, uh, we have limited resources, time, and Mm. it is the best that we can make for it, right? That's beautiful. Okay, so this is the last question, and I would not take much of your evening time. Um, So what is that one book that you would recommend that everybody should read? And I ask this question to everyone who comes to my show. So what do you want Okay, this is a tough one. Um, and only one recommendation is not possible. <laughs> so, uh, more. Yeah, I will recommend at least three and okay. uh, that I have recently read and I hope that is okay. Yes. So, okay, great. Um, so the first uh, that I finished reading uh, last week, in fact, um, mm. and I've also uh, written a review for, um, which may be published sometime soon, mm-hmm. uh, it's for uh, Srila Roy's Changing the Subject, Feminism, yeah. Queer Politics in yes. Neoliberal India. Yes. And everything about that book, um, the content, the ethnography, mm. the writing style is really flawless. And, at par excellence, uh, isn't it? Sheila is at par excellence. Yeah, Absolutely. And for yeah. anyone who is interested to know about queer feminist activism and mm. its entanglements with neoliberalism in India should really read uh, this book. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, my second uh, recommendation would be The Care Manifesto, uh, The Politics mm. of Interdependence by The Care Collective. 
which has made me appreciate the radical vision of a caring world that the book offers. And this vision is premised on the intrinsic value of all living creatures uh, and Mm -hmm. recognizing our mutual interdependencies, which I found really beautiful. Mm And my last would be uh, The Slow Professor by Maggie Berg and Barbara Sieber. Mm -hmm. Uh, This book is essentially uh, for academics like myself, who sometimes... (laughs) consumed by deadlines and uh, have the phrase publish or perish deeply wired in their brains. Yes. So to unlearn uh, those, you know, uh, phrases and practices, uh, I think right. this book is a, a really important book. And does, if you yes. would also like book recommendations uh, on masculinities from within mm-hmm. South Asia, mm-hmm. um, then I have two recommendations. The first yes. would be Sharon Phillips' Becoming Young Men in a New India. I think it's an excellent book. And um, Shanila Khoja Mulji's um, Sovereign Attachments, Masculinity, Muslimness, and Affective Politics in Pakistan. And Mm -hmm. I think these two would be interesting picks for masculinity studies. Mm -hmm. I have one more, Amya Agarwal's book. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Isn't it? You should recommend that. Of course, (laughs) it should be in the list, right? And any fiction that you would suggest? Oh, my God. I haven't really read fictions. This Uh, is the answer that we all give, by the way. (laughs) We haven't read fiction in a long time. Yeah, Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, once the academic precarity subsides, I will have time for that. But yes, Yes. (laughs) right now I don't have any uh, recommendations for a fiction. Wow, this is wonderful. And thanks for the recommendation, Andrea. And, you know, it's wonderful speaking to you. And um, so much that I learned about the book while reading. Um, And there's so much that I actually took away for my own thesis. So I have to thank you for that. And I'm glad that we could do this after, you know, waiting a long time. And thank you so much. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you, Tusharika. And not just this conversation, but every conversation with you is uh, always yes. so much fun. Our and... conversations just keep going on and on, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Thanks, okay. a- thanks again. It was really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much.